it's a message for our house. I, I've been uh, sharing with our family, this will be the third time, but I, I feel like this is kind of a family talk, if you will, uh, for, for our crew. And uh, the Lord spoke to me maybe six weeks ago, sitting over here in uh, a prayer meeting. It was our 6 a.m. set. It was a Monday set. God tends to speak Monday mornings uh, here. And uh, I heard this phrase, and it caught me off guard. And it was batting down the hatches. I just wrote it down. And uh, I actually Googled it, thinking I knew what it, it, it meant. Uh, it's a nautical term just uh, for seamen that when a storm is approaching, they batten down the hatches of a ship. And, uh, and the thing is, is that ships were made for storms. They were made for storms. Uh, but you need to prepare for those storms. If, they're not, if you don't prepare rightly, that storm will get inside the boat. And uh, I don't know what's ahead, but I feel like for our community specifically, uh, there could be some storms, there could be some headwinds, and specifically in the realm of persecution, in the realm of, uh, of I, I don't know much more than that. And I've shared that with my elders, I've shared that with uh, our staff, but I really felt like this weekend and next weekend, uh, I want to equip you um, to batten down the hatches of your own life, batten down the hatches of your relationships, batten down the hatches uh, for your soul, and this message, it will be uh, universally applied, but it's specific, I think, to the upper room. And, uh, and it's about uh, specifically a weapon that the enemy uses. His arsenal's uh, not, not very deep. He doesn't, I mean, he, he, he's, he's not original in his attacks. Uh, you, you can know uh, the ways of the Lord, but you can also know the ways of our enemy. And uh, one of his major weapons in his arsenal is the weapon of accusation. And tonight I want to talk about uh, overcoming the spirit of accusation uh, because I think many of you have been impacted by it. Um, whether it's in the spirit, voices that you hear that you think are your own, I really want you to delineate between the voice of the accuser and your conscience. Uh, and then also just the accuser that is among us. Um, he's speaking to us about others. And when we agree with his voice and accusation, it actually cuts off that relationship and brings division and separation. And so we are called to operate in the opposite spirit. Jesus didn't give us the ministry of accusation. Contrary to what some guys online are doing. He didn't give us the ministry of accusation. He gave us a ministry of reconciliation. And uh, we, in the name of discernment, in the name of some type of religious, like, hunting heresy, we've, we've aimed the guns at our own. And there's been friendly fire. And I just want us to acknowledge it for what it is. And I want you to be able to, to discern the spirit of accusation. Because many times it's cloaked in religion. It's cloaked in the voice that, that, that uh, yeah, sounds more like the older brother. It sounds more like a pharisaical spirit. And there's a lot of young people in the room and uh, you're, you're new. Some of you are just cutting your teeth when it comes to the things of God. And, and this, is, this is primary for you to identify, primary for you to understand, primary for you to be equipped to overcome the spirit of accusation. Is that cool? So put your hand on your heart real quick. Uh, Lord, Lord, deliver me deliver from any influence, from any influence of the accuser and the spirit of accusation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, Isaiah 54, 17, uh, it's a famous scripture that you've probably sung, said, shouted, screamed, but it's no weapon formed against you shall what? 
We know it. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. But if you keep reading, that's part A of the verse. Part B is that weapon is every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. So oftentimes the weapon that is formed against us is the accusation of the enemy or the accusation of a brother or sister. And uh, I want you to know that the voice of accusation does not have to prosper in your life. That when you see it for what it is, you can cut it off. When you see it for what it is, you can renounce it. When you see it for what it is, you can break agreement with it because the power of it is in agreement. The spirit realm is a realm of legalities. It's a realm of words. God created in the beginning, he spoke. And it's through words that, that, that he's established his kingdom. And, and you are subjected to something. You're subjected to some voice. It can be the voice of God, which is the key because the just walk by faith. Faith comes by hearing his word. So that's why we, we harp on the authority of the word. We harp on you listening to God, knowing God's word, being rooted in God's word. But you can also listen to the voice of accusation. And when you listen to the voice of accusation or the enemy's voice, you actually are subjecting your heart to his authority. You're, you're subjecting your heart to his reign, to his influence. And so some of us are demonized. And I don't, I don't mean we're demon-possessed. We're influenced, though, by demons that are accusing. And, and we get slimed. And those things slime our relationships. They slime our conscience. They slime our view of ourselves. And oftentimes, if we're under accusation or we're living with a critical spirit, it starts with ourselves. It starts with how we view ourselves. We love others as we love ourselves. And if you're living under condemnation and accusation towards yourself, you're going to accuse others. Whenever I meet someone that's accusing a lot of people or walking in a critical spirit, I have mercy for them because I understand that's what they live under. And it's a, it's a real, real challenging thing, especially if you grew up in the church, uh, because a lot of times in religious communities, and I mean church like, like, like religious, religiosity, um, uh, kind of like a law-based, works-oriented, behavior modification thing, um, it, it, it really does... Uh, uh, enforce the spirit of accusation um, because it's based on what you do. And thank God our faith isn't based on our own behavior, amen? It's based on what he's done for us. So we'll get you free tonight of that. Revelation twelve ten, end time passage, <clears throat> and talks about uh, a heavenly scene. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and it says this in Revelation twelve ten. then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Those are some big words. They have come. And with the authority, salvation, and power of that kingdom, look at what happens. The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. And it says that they, the saints, overcame the accuser. We know this verse, but it's the accuser. We overcome the accuser because of the blood of the lamb because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. This is speaking of the, the, the martyrs in the last days. The Bible prophesies that there will be martyrs in the last days. But that, that, that martyrdom spirit starts from the accuser himself. And so this spirit will be rampant in the last days, we, we see it already. Like, you know, cancel culture. We have, we have new names for it, but the biblical names is the spirit of accusation. We call it cancel culture. What's cancel culture? You cancel someone for what they've done. The cancel culture is the antithesis of the kingdom of God. You and I should have been canceled long ago. 
right? I mean, dude, I'm at the front of that line. I should have been canceled long ago, but God and his mercies, God and his love, God and his for, like long-suffering patience and kindness, he, he did not cancel one person. He does not cancel people because he doesn't accuse people. But the cancel culture is based on a spirit of accusation. And so the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. And then Matthew 24, 10 actually prophesies as well about the, the toxicity of the end time age, which I believe we're in. It says that then they will hand you over to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away. Many will fall away. What are they falling away? They're falling away from the faith. They once walked with the Lord, but they're falling away because of the pressure cooker of that hour. And the pressure cooker is defined by many falling away because people will be betraying people and they will hate one another. Again, the antithesis of who we're called to be, but the enemy has a strategy for that hour. But so does Jesus. As things get more gory, as things get harder, as that pressure cooker intensifies, things are gonna get glorious in the church. The darkest hour will be the brightest hour for the bride. In John 17, 22 and 23, it's a powerful text. It's the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying to his father. And listen to what he says. And I believe this is an end time passage as well. He says, the glory. Everyone say the glory. But say it like this, the glory. So the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one. Just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world, it'll be a witness to the world, so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them just as you have loved me. Woo! We're, we're on that trajectory as a people. But it's my conviction that you have to be equipped to know how to combat the spirit of this age, which does not want to see John 17, 22, and 23 fulfilled, but the Spirit of God will fulfill it. So if you have your Bibles, go to Zechariah 3. Say, I love my Bible. <laughs> Which is on my iPhone. Just kidding. You need pages. Bring your pages here. We like pages. So Zechariah 3. If you go to Psalms, hang a right. Go past Joel. Go past Jonah. Go past Nahum. Go past Haggai, and then you'll find Zechariah. Zechariah 3. This shows you the accuser of the brethren before the Lord. Verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua. Yeshua. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Anytime in the Old Testament you read angel of the Lord, think Jesus. So Joshua standing in the heavenly courts. Now, now, Joshua was actually on the earth, but Zechariah is having a vision of this earthly priest who carried spiritual authority before the eyes of God. And so he's representing the nation of Israel as the priest. That's what priests do. And we're a royal priesthood, amen? And so this is Joshua performing the role of a priest approaching the Lord. Now, here's what the accuser does. And he did it to Joshua in his day, but he does it to you. When you attempt to approach the Lord, he points his finger and he says, Lord, how can this person approach you? You're holy. You're blameless. How can he approach you? And he begins to accuse Joshua, the high priest, who's filthy. Why is he filthy? 
He's filthy for two reasons. He's filthy because he's a fallen man himself, but he's also filthy because he's representing a filthy people. He's representing a people that had been in rebellion and had been in sin. And so it's twofold. It's both Joshua's sin and then the sins of his people he's representing. And Satan is right to accuse Joshua because we'll read as he's standing before him, accusing him. We see that the Lord rebukes Satan, which is always awesome. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Uh, be careful when you yell at Satan. Let's let God do that. Don't pick fights you're not called to be a part of. Don't yell at principalities. Don't get in that thing. Just yell the word of the Lord. All right? Seriously, there's some wonky, like, spiritual judo kind of black belt karate stuff that just don't touch. Follow Jesus. He's king of kings, lord of lords, name above all names. Let's stick with him. So let the Lord rebuke Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now look at this, verse three. Joshua was clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel of the Lord. So the accusation that the devil was making against this high priest approaching the Lord, they were factual. They were actually true. So oftentimes, point number one, the accusations of the enemy oftentimes have a slither of truth. <laughs> Little t, or fact, like a little f, like it, there's a true thing in this, but, but God was living from a different perspective. God's narrative over Joshua's life was different because look at what he does. After he rebuked Satan, he then spoke to those that were standing before him. And this is what he said, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with festal robes. Then uh, the Lord said, let, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. What's happening here? The heavenly narrative is hitting Joshua's life. God's view of Joshua, God's grace upon his life is falling upon Joshua. So you have two narratives colliding, but the truth of God's perspective will always trump any accusation from the devil. And this is t what we tend to do with people. We tend to have resumes for people. So you like look at Ryan up here and you're like, yeah, I could see him being, I could see him being in the highest office. He looks stately. He's the only one in a jacket. <laughs> He's a businessman, pastor, well-spoken. You're looking at the external of my friend, Ryan Binkley. But you know what I'm convicted of? I'm convicted of what the Lord sees when he looks at him. I'm convicted of the narrative over him and his family. I'm convicted of something much bigger than what is presented on the external. But what we tend to do is we tend to, here's what we tend to do. We tend to like, you know, five, 10 strengths, five, 10 weaknesses. And we can see that in people. Like I'm a preacher. I preach for a living. I don't know if you know that. I, I do it regularly here, <laughs> but but I'm starting to travel more. And, and, and what, what happens is there's a lot of voices out there and there's a lot of packaging for those voices. And I can't live as a messenger under the approval of those that I'm standing in front of. I have to live with a greater narrative as a messenger, lest I'll just be combated by whatever you 
want your ears to hear. Does this make sense? There's always two narratives at play internally, and we've got to attune our ears to the divine narrative over our own lives, but also over the lives of those that we walk with. It's just imperative that we do that. You you see it in the life of David. David, uh, you know, Samuel shows up, he's lamenting uh, the the hard-heartedness and just the the failure that Saul was. And, and we've looked at that before, but, but he's lamenting that and God goes, get up, quit mourning this. Go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem for I've chosen a man that's after my own heart. And so he shows up and he sees Eliab, which is the oldest, who's probably the tallest and looked the most qualified. And Samuel's like pulling out his oil ready to go and the Lord goes, no, stop looking at men this way. I don't evaluate men the way you do. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? At the heart. And David wasn't even there. He's mowing the yard. He's out in the back 40. So they call him in and then he anoints him with oil. And then Paul describes David as a man who, who fulfilled God's will and purposes for his generation. The entire council, he fulfilled it for his generation. Paul said that in him in Acts 13. And, and I don't know if you've read anything about David's life, but First and Second Samuel give a lot of descriptions of David's life. And he was anything but perfect. It, it, to me, doesn't look like he perfectly fulfilled the will of God for his life. Like there's Bathsheba, there's Uriah. There's like when Uriah reads that in heaven, he's like, Paul, did you miss that little part about him killing me? But what Paul was looking at was at the heavenly narrative over David's life. Abraham, it says that he did not waver in faith. And I'm like, Paul, did you not have access to the book of Genesis? Like what happened with Ishmael and Hagar? But he didn't waver in faith. What's Paul writing about? Paul's writing about the narrative of heaven over his life. I just, God's fact keeping are different than ours. His accounts, the way that he views our lives are different than ours. And we have to grow and mature in understanding how to relate to ourselves and one another based on how he relates to us. Because I promise you, beloved, he does not accuse. He does not accuse. Your God does not accuse. Jesus does not accuse. You cannot find in the gospels where Jesus accused an individual. What what does accusation mean? Here's what accusation means. Accusation is to charge or claim that someone has done something wrong. The Bible says in John 3, 17, that Jesus did not come to accuse or to condemn, but he came to save. The, the greatest depiction of that is in John chapter eight. Um, John chapter eight, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's like a moment for cancel culture to show up in the first century. And Jesus is teaching in the temple. It would be like me teaching you right now. And all of a sudden, someone's dragged through these doors and put on this stage, and we can obviously tell what she had just been doing. Because the Bible tells us that she was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, where the dude was, I don't know. But they brought the woman in. And all the fingers are pointing at her. Everyone's looking at what she had just done. And it says that the Pharisees brought this woman before the council and before Jesus, this woman who had been caught, they brought her in front of him in order to catch Jesus. Look at this real quick. Just John, go to John chapter eight. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but John chapter eight, um, I think it's verse six. Let's start in verse six. Yeah, they were saying this. 
this woman should die, this woman should be contemned, because they were testing Jesus. They were testing Jesus so that they may have grounds for accusing him. This is how the spirit of accusation works. We accuse one, but the spirit of accusation, as one is accused, it does not stop with the one. It breeds, it gets viral in the hearts of those that are around accusation. Like I used this analogy this morning, but have you seen the meme where the Spider-Man, I think it's just Spider-Man, correct me, but where they're pointing like this, This is how the spirit of accusation looks. Everyone do this. This is how the spirit of accusation, I'm, I'm pulling a card here from Ryan. <laughs> this is how accusation works. We all are pointing our finger. And, and it's looking for someone to agree with it. Because listen, if, if Jesus would have agreed with this spirit of accusation, it brings condemnation. Anytime you agree with accusation, it condemns. The purpose of accusation, accusation is under condemnation. And here's what Jesus does, is Jesus takes the fingers that all these guys are pointing, and he knew that they were living under accusation themselves. And so he takes their fingers and he points them inward to themselves to disarm their own accusations. And he says, hey, listen, psst, you who are without sin, you pick up the first stone. They had stones, and the oldest among them dropped the stone. Why? Because the oldest among them knew <laughs> very familiar with their fallenness. And, and, and everyone around this woman is, is removed from her presence. This is how Jesus deals with the spirit of accusation. He removes it. Why? Because he looks at her and he goes, where are your accusers? She goes, they're not here. Who is here to condemn you? There's no one here but you. And what he does is he removes all the accusations so he can look at her and go, Listen, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. The one that could have condemned her forgave her. There was one who could have accused her. He offered her mercy. And listen, until you see yourself like her before him, All of us should have been condemned. But I love Romans 8. There is now no more condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus because all of the accusations, he took them. Boom. Amen? Jesus never accused anyone. Um, and I, I want to just, there's young people in the room. I, I want to speak to you. There's an internal judgment seat that you have. It's called your conscience. Everyone said conscience. So the way you're designed, you have a conscience. It's the internal voice that you have. And um, Romans 2 talks about it. I'm not going to get into it, but it talks about, it's kind of a judgment seat internally. Like, hey, I did good this week or I did bad. And it, it's just constantly weighing. Like if you have guilt, it's your conscience that guilt rests upon. If you have shame, it's, it's your conscience that's aware of it. It's an internal voice. And oftentimes, for those that aren't born again, that voice inside of you is a voice that accuses. It's a voice that is constantly measuring up how you're doing based on what you're doing. And here's the beauty of the gospel. is The beauty of the gospel is that the blood of Jesus cleanses your conscience. The blood, it speaks. 
It's, it's more than a song and a cool theology. The blood of Jesus has a voice and that voice is applied to your conscience so that it's cleansed. And you're not to have a sin conscience, a self-conscience, an other conscience. You're to have a conscience that's focused on Christ and his voice towards you. And his voice is a voice of mercy. His voice is a voice of grace, forgiveness, love, acceptance, reconciliation. His narrative is different than your narrative. His narrative is different than the cultural narrative. And that's why we have to renew our minds daily to come under the voice of his blood, the voice of his will, the voice of his love for us so that we can come out from that condemnation. Does this make sense? Some of you, that, that voice, it's not even your own. It's the enemy who's speaking. There's three voices. There's the voice of the Lord, there's the enemy voice, and there's your voice. And we need to have discernment. And you know that the Lord's not going to accuse you. The Lord does not have a finger that's pointed at you. He has arms that are open to you. For the longest time growing up in the church, I had the, 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 the only part of God that I could relate to was his finger because I felt like it was always pointed at me. Like it's, it's all I knew. But ultimately, that's the power of the law. It was to expose the problem. The, the power of the law, it's, it's, it's called the ministry of condemnation, but it could be called the ministry of accusation. But its accusations are correct. And, and it was pointing us to the solution, who is Jesus, who now writes that law upon our hearts. And that, that, that's his voice. So it's just so important, <laughs> young person, you need to be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Because faith comes by hearing. And so the record that is internally playing in your heart, you need it to be the voice of your father. That's why the word of God's so important. Amen. Um, I, I was recently with a friend that, that reached out to me because there was just some, some conflict between he and I and another person. I didn't know there was conflict. Um, and, and the enemy had been accusing me to him. I didn't know that. I genuinely didn't. I thought everything was fine in this transition that I was a part of and involved in things. But he called me and just said, hey, I need to bear my heart with you. And he lays it all out there. And I had no idea that he had been listening to just half-truths and different things. But this narrative had been developed about me. And as he, as he presents it to me, I just got to go, man, I am so sorry. But, but here's my heart. And I crack my heart open and he starts crying. And he, he, he repented for agreeing with accusation instead of coming to me. And, and as soon as he agreed with who he knew me to be and, and, and now was hearing who I was, like this deep bond hit. I started crying, he started crying, and we hugged over Zoom. And, and we've been texting each other. There's like this fresh wind in our relationship. But what happens over time is if he doesn't have the courage to have that conversation, we need to have courageous conversations, which we'll talk about next week. We're gonna have courageous conversations. But if he would have lived in that accusation, eventually our relationship would have been condemned. Parts of our relationship would have suffered because, eh, Miller, and just push play. And many of us have this jukebox internally towards people and we just have that B9 button that we push and we're just used to that song playing over that relationship. And I believe this weekend the Lord wants to break it off. I heard of three people this morning that went to people in the room. They weren't supposed to be here. 
people that they had conflict with. And as I'm preaching this message, they made eye contact, came together, forgave one another, repented, and there was reconciliation and connection. And all that needed to happen is light to be seen. You know, in John 8, after he forgives the woman, it's the famous text where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He's exposing. And I, I wanna say this, someone came up to me after this morning that was in an abusive situation. If someone has been in an abusive situation, um, like I don't have time to go into this when it comes to like bringing those things into the light, but I'm not saying that we do not deal with sin. Meaning if things have been done to you, you're not just to get over it, you need to bring it into the light. And when you come into that light, there's, there's ample opportunity for us to apply grace and truth and all that stuff. But uh, it's just, let's be careful here that I'm not, I'm not saying that we, we just, you know, broad stroke this. Like, if someone's done something to you, it needs to be brought into the light. Does this make sense? I hope it does. I felt tender towards that. So 1 first, first Corinthians 4 verse 5 says this, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. And listen to what he'll do. He will disclose the motives of human hearts. And then praises will come to each person from God. So we need to be careful about judging the motives of someone else. Um, we just do. And so uh, let, let, me, let me give you some practicals just uh, very quickly uh, in closing. Well, actually, here, here's the words of Jesus. Jesus said, blessed, this is Matthew 5.11. Write these down. This is worth studying. Matthew 5.11, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you <laughs> and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus said, you're blessed in that. And then in Matthew 5, 43, and 40, 43 through 45, he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your father who is in heaven. So one of the ways we prove our sonship is how we respond to our enemies, how we respond to those that, are, that persecute us and say false things about us uh, because he's benevolent. Our God is, he's merciful. And then this is another powerful text, Romans 12, 17 through 20. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, he'll heap burning coals on his head. So this is about surrender, trust, getting that eternal reality of that person. So here's three things practically, ready? Number one. This is the most powerful point. Um, and, and you may disagree with it, but it's, it's actually profound wisdom. Here's point number one. You don't have to have an opinion. That's emoji mind blown. Like, what? I don't have to have an opinion. No, you don't have to have an opinion. You don't have to insert yourself. You don't, you don't, you don't have to defend yourself. Let's even take it any further. <laughs> like for whatever reason, we, we, we think we need to have an opinion about everything. In the information age, uh, we feel like we need to sound off. In John 7, verse 12, uh, th these conversations surround. When God starts moving, 
the commentary of the hour shows up, when God starts moving, like here come the armchair quarterbacks, here come everyone and their dog sharing their opinion. And this happened in Jesus' day. Look at this. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning Jesus. Some, this Tommy gave me this. I see Tommy over there. He shared this in class. There was much grumbling among the clouds, crowds concerning him. Uh, some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. What is this? This is a good religious, this is a good religious commentary. But you know what? Neither one of them's right. Jesus wasn't just a good man. And he certainly wasn't a deceiver leading people astray. But it, it happened then and it happens today, like Asbury hits. And, and if you're on your social media feed, it's like, oh my gosh, who's who is at Asbury? And it's like, I gotta get in that room and take a selfie and then I've gotta tell everyone what I think of what's happening. I'm like, people ask me, what about, what do you think about Asbury? I'm like, I don't have a lot of thoughts. It looks really awesome. <laughs> you know, it's like, let's just celebrate it. Let's see. But it's like all of a sudden we, 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 we've got to get ahead of it or we've got to get on top of it or we've got to see what so-and-so has to say. We just live in this age of like, insert opinion here. I was Googling directions to get to Upper Room yesterday. I know how to get here, but I was in a part of town where I needed to get here quick. And so uh, I did it and then I hit maps. But before I hit maps, um, it was like directions, information, and then it was reviews of Upper Room. And I was like, Reviews? reviews. And so I'm like, I hit it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, people have been reviewing our church. Like you can, you can, you can leave here tonight and get on your phone. You can do it right now. And you can give a review of what you thought of the upper room family. Like what does this say about us? Like if I go, if I go to Sly's house, Sly's, Sly's a man right here. But listen, if I go to Sly's house and Sly has me over for dinner, Sly has me over for dinner and then I put Sly's house and, and there's directions and it's like review Sly's house and I'm like, Meh, it's all right. Like I wouldn't do that to Sly. Uh, Sly's house is different than the Smith's house. Like I'm not going to do that. But wh why do we feel like we need to do that? Like, oh, preaching's, meh, worship's long. I'm writing this review at 731, church started at five. Well, that's just how we do things. I, I, we, we, there's, there's other options. Parking. <laughs> that was the first one I read was someone like, Bro, wear your walking shoes. But, but here's the thing is if I start reading those comments, the Lord, the Lord was really quick to go, and to get in front of that. Because if I start reading them, here's the only ones I would remember are the negative ones. The only ones I would remember. Why? It's like, why do we feel entitled? to have to have an opinion. Why? Like, it, it, I think it's, it's a fruit of the Spirit, self-control. What do you think about? I don't. 
Did you hear about? Like, we don't have to insert ourselves. You don't, you don't have to sound off on Instagram. You don't have to sound off on Twitter. Like that thing, it, it is the spirit of accusation in our midst. It's, it's just breeding condemnation. It's breeding division. And it has no place in the church. It has no place in this church. You want to talk about batting down the hatches. We need to batten down the hatches. And when we hear accusation, we need to confront it. I want to deputize you to confront accusation in this house, accusation about other people, accusation about me, accusation about our leadership, accusation about our theology, accusation. And if you need to meet with someone, if you need to bring it to the light and I'll give you tools for that next week, we need to have courageous conversations. It's not that we ignore issues, but it's that we don't make up accusations about those with the issues. We love people with issues. Guess what? We all have issues. Yes, I, I've got issues. I, I recently was, was, was on vacation and, um, and I don't know what it is, but, but you know, we just how upper rooms evolved and grown and, and various platforms and voices out there. And, and a friend of mine sent me a link to, uh, it was a link to some people that were speaking about me and it wasn't in a positive sense. So I just wanted you to know this was out here. And I, I'm on vacation, man. I'm in Maui. It was, it was a ministry trip. It was, I was in Kona. I was in Kona at YWAM. It was YWAM, but then we just happened to be right next door to Maui and we're like, let's go to Maui. So we went to Maui. It was beautiful. And, um, and I'm like, and I've, I've, I've been through this before. It's not, it's not a massive deal, but, but it just takes a second to get on top of them. Just does like just bear my heart a little bit. And so I'm like, I'm like, Oh, and I'm like, why'd you send that to me? Don't send things to people like this. There's no room for it. Pray for people. If you read something about someone, pray for them. Pray for me. Thank you. So I'm like, oh, I look at my beautiful bride sleeping there and I'm like, and all of a sudden I feel like the Lord goes, don't you speak to her about it. And I said, but God, I need to speak to someone. And I, you know, I just see the Lord like smiling, like. <laughs> so I'm like. And, and, and as I, as I, as I bear my heart, as I put my heart before him, this is what I heard the Lord say. I heard the Lord say, do not speak about it with anyone, you know, but, but him. And I'm like, I'm like, God, so I get up and, and I, it's just starting to work me over. It's getting into my soul. And I'm, and so I'm like, I need the word. So I get in the word, just showing you how I dealt with false accusation. So I start reading and I, I took a cue out of Bill Johnson. Bill's like, read the Psalms until you feel your heart come alive. 
So I hopped in Psalms 30, and I'm just cruising through 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, and I get to Psalms 39. And Psalms 39, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but it was like the letters were 10 feet tall. And, and I knew the Lord was speaking to me through Psalms 39, and he says this. He says, Psalms 39, one, I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. While the wicked are in my presence, I was mute and silent. I refrained from even, even from good. And then it says my sorrow grew worse, but uh, <laughs> hold on. Uh, I'll, I'll add commentary there. That, that part didn't stick up as high as the other part. So it was the other part that was sticking up really high that I was reading. I was like, okay. Okay, I, the mute and silent part is what spoke to me because I felt like it confirmed what the Lord said. And so, so I was like, okay, God. So we wake up, we're, we're like, my kids get up and we saw whales. There were whales jumping and I know it was, it was good. So, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm mute and this thing's kind of still trying to work me over. And I'm like, Lord, I love you. Lord, I bless you. Lord, I just, and and, uh, and my heart just kept getting like, <clears throat> I was really fighting internally. And so I went back to the word and, uh, and I started reading the rest of this. So I went to Psalms 39. So once something sticks out, you keep reading it. So I was like, Psalms 39, that's the prescription for this thing. And look at this. It says, my heart was hot within me while I was musing, the fire burned. And then, then I spoke with my tongue. And so as this is how the Lord led me through this, as I'm silent, my heart started to manifest internally what these accusations were doing. And typically what I would do is dump on my wife and process with my wife. But what the Lord was saying is he was like, son, I want to deal, pers- I want to deal with that inside your heart because I, I don't want accusation to be able to land in your heart. You have a fear of man. You still are dealing with the approval of man. Because these words are wiggling their way into your heart. And I promise you, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I just want to live under your covering. And I just lament to the Lord. And I had the best next 48 hours. And I've been living free of that accusation since. But what I realized is that when something hits my heart, I want to just go, I need to go process. And the Lord's like, your, your default is to process with anyone and everyone but me. And you need to bring that to me and you need to be silent about it because your endoendos and subtleties and you trying to process it, you're, there's payoff for you. It's paying off inside of you because you're getting someone to go, yeah, that is wrong what they did. That is wrong. And so the spirit of accusation then breathes accusation about, well, I'm right and you're wrong. And God's like, stop it. It's a zero sum game. Like no one will win in this. This is what frees us from accusation. You're not out to win an argument. You're not out to be right. You know what? You are right, but you're bitter. You are right, but you're hurting. What they did was wrong. And it's, it's fine to be angry. It's a natural response to being wronged, but anger ages terrible. It's like milk. It gets bitter and sour, and it's what it does to your soul. Aged anger has no place in your heart. It's why you've got to take it to the Lord. 
Anger results in a root of bitterness. And Hebrews 12 says that a root of bitterness defiles many. And we have a culture that's bitter towards one another because it's been angry by injustices that have happened. That's why the toxicity in the culture is there. It's because of the injustices that we've seen on our phone. As we see these racial injustices, we see all these even made up injustices and people are angry about it, but the anger of man will never produce the righteousness of God. We need to be slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to listen. We need his perspective and putting a muzzle over our mouth is a way that we can get his perspective because when our mouths are shut, we can actually hear his. So we need to keep watch over our ways so that we do not sin with our tongue. Amen. So. So the first one is you don't have to have an opinion. The second one is if you need to talk, be proactive with your words, not reactive. Um, and I think we have to be that proactive in when we talk about it. Does it mean I, I'm not going to talk about certain things? No, I'm going to talk about certain things, but it's going to be scheduled and I'm going to be proactive in it. I've got some elders that I'm submitted to. I've got people that I'm submitted to. I've got people that I need to process things with. And so you need to select those people to process those things, but you don't need to process it with everybody. So we need to be proactive in our processing. And the last point is this, is that um, the last point is just accusation. At what accusation wants to do is it wants to harden your heart. Accusation wants to, 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 to make your heart cold towards other people. It, want, it wants you to close your heart off. It's, that's the power of accusation is it, as it seeps in, it just, it, it makes you guarded and protected. Now we need to guard our heart above all else, but but our heart's protector is, is, is the Lord. And so one of the things that I've found has been really helpful for me is uh, it was Psalms 18. And it, it, it's, it's a Psalm where David is talking about being trained as a, for battle and being trained as a warrior. It's like his, his feet are like the hinds feet of a deer and that he trains his hands for war. But, but in verse 35, Psalms 18, he says this, he says, you've given me the shield of salvation, your right hand upholds me, but it says, your gentleness makes me great. Your gentleness makes me great. To me, th that line is, is really peculiar to me because we don't think of gentleness and great in the same phrase. But I think gentleness, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit and the fruits of the spirit are actually in the context of relationships, it's in the context of us chewing, biting, and devouring one another. It's conflict. And so gentleness, gentleness helps us it helps us personally that our hearts stay tender. Tender to the person accusing us, but ultimately tender to the Lord. Um, I, I, just, I just found a gentleness through this. Listen, gentleness defined is this. Gentleness defined, gentleness or meekness is this. It's the opposite to self-assertiveness or self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with the self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. So gentleness, Jesus was lowly and gentle in heart. See, only two descriptions of his heart, meek and gentle. And so we want to remain gentle in heart. Paul, when he's confronting, put up, put up 2 Corinthians 10. I'm almost done. 2 Corinthians 10, 1. Check this out. This will slap your mama good. Watch this. This is really good. Watch. Now, I, Paul, I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and everyone say that word. Gentleness, gentleness of Christ. I, I'm, I'm, I'm appealing to you. Meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold when I'm absent. And then, and then look, look, verse two is I'm present. I don't have to be bold, confident, proposed, courageous. Someone regards you uh, as if we walked according to the flesh. Look at verse three. 
for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. But connect verse one to verse three. He's talking about not walking in the flesh and waging war and it's destroying strongholds and, 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 and principalities and that kind of thing, which is another teaching. But I want you to just see verse one, it's meekness and gentleness that he approaches them in conflict, in war, in accusation. He's coming in meekness, lowliness, and gentleness. And we've got to stay in that place because what accusation wants us to do, it wants us to get, you want to accuse me? I'm going to defend myself. You want to accuse me? No, no, no. I'm going to come in low. I've actually found some accusations. Lord, is there truth in this? Lord, allow, allow me to find even a slither of truth if I need to be sanctified, if I need to repent. Lord, I want to be gentle and tender towards those things. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm living underneath them, but I just want to stay lowly. Does this make sense? Lowly is so, so, so important. So um, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs anger. Gentleness is so, so, so key. I've seen this in my wife. When my wife parents, she's so gentle. I don't have the fruits of the spirit sometimes as a dad, especially at like two in the morning when they come in and they're, you can hear them in our two-story house. And you can hear the little steps. And then they're the loudest door openers. It's like, when you're like, oh, it's three in the morning and you walk right up to mom and, and I am like, what are you doing? And she's like, hey, sweetie. You just woke up. Like, how are you this tender? I don't know. I don't know if it's a motherly thing or I'm married to an angel. I don't know. Although Truman peed in the bed the other night that was on her side and she wasn't as gentle then, but for the most part, she's pretty gentle. Um, so let's go the way of Jesus in this most powerful example of Jesus dealing with a betrayer, a friend that was literally going to hand him over was at the last supper. And so grab, grab your, grab your relics, your elements here. Has this been helpful tonight? <clears throat> Next week, we're going to talk about courageous conversations. I don't want you to ignore conflict. I think sometimes in the name of living unoffendable and not wanting to hold a grudge and we don't know how to rightly have courageous conversations. So next week I'll help you with that. But Jesus takes him to the table of the Lord, uh, takes this last supper. Let me just read this narrative, John 13. It's verse 21. It says, when Jesus said these things, he became troubled in the spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you, one of my friends will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking about. So they could not tell who would betray. In Luke's account, they break out into a conversation, who's the greatest, which is fascinating. So lying back on Jesus's chest was one of his disciples. That's the one whom Jesus loved. It's such a flex by John. So John's on his bosom. He's like really in an intimate place. And, and John, John is, is, he whispers this. Well, I'm sorry, Simon Peter asked John, hey, tell us who he's speaking about. Like, who's the, who's the rat? Who's gonna rat out Jesus? Who's gonna betray him? Who is Jesus talking about? They didn't know. 
But, but here's John. It's such a, I think it's such an interesting scene. John's on his, on his uh, Phil, can you be Jesus? Come here. I, I, I hadn't done this all weekend, but I want to do it tonight. So, so I, I don't know how they were sitting, but, but I know John was next to Jesus and you've got Judas was close because in this text, Simon Peter gestures and Simon Peter wasn't close, obviously, because he's having to ask him which one. And so John's in proxy. And so John, Jesus, which one? Who's the rat? <laughs> Who's going to betray you? It's actually more intimate than that. Who's the one that's going to betray you? And, and Jesus answered him. He said, he said uh, it's the one for whom I shall dip the morsel. This is part of the Seder, the Seder meal. They dip a morsel and it's the bitter herbs. It's a real like specific part with the bread and he, he dips it into... Uh, he, he, he dips it in and he takes it and, and he's gonna give it to Judas. He's gonna feed Judas. So this is Jesus telling John this. And so John's in his bosom here. This is the morsel. And so Jesus, I need a Judas. I know, like who wants to be Judas? Everyone's pointing at Joel. <laughs> I looked over here and everyone's like, Okay, I'm not going to do you. I'm going to do J. Lou. Come here. So I know J. Lou's is far from it, but you actually, this is your revelation. You taught me this one. So, you, you, you're, so you're sitting here. So Judas doesn't know this, but look at this for a second. I, do, I want you to physically see what's going to happen. So he's leaning here and, and Jesus is going to feed Judas. Feed Judas. Judas. So you take that. Now, pause. So from John's perspective, he's viewing Jesus' betrayer through the bread. I just think of how, how John must have reflected on this moment once he would know the gravity of what Jesus would go through and what his broken body would mean and how Jesus treated, not just an accusation, how Jesus treated the one who was going to hand him over to his own death. And, and, and he has this perspective. And, and what I, I've actually found tremendously healing is when I come to the table of the Lord, I, I want my life to show up here. It's not a religious drive-through, thank you for the body, thank you for the blood. I gotta bring my life here. These are weapons for us. They're, 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 they're tools for our faith. And so I, I got to understand the, the, you who are many are made one by one loaf. You who are many are made one by one loaf. The church at Corinthians was divided and Paul points to the bread. He goes, how can you be divided when you're sharing the same bread? And so it, this comes back to this, like there's division and what's Jesus doing? He's feeding his betrayer. And so I've, I've brought like those, those, those friends and, 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 and acquaintances and people that may, may say accusations and things. I want to bring them to this place and I want to say, Jesus, I want to be close to your heart. And, and I need your bread. 
and they need your bread. And I want to view them through your broken body because your broken body is the answer to this broken relationship. And, and recently, like I've had this revelation, like, oh yes, feed, feed your enemies, Michael. Bring them to the table and feed your enemies. It's beautiful when I do that, but you come sit here. Now you lean on his chest and you feed me because here's, we can all, we all want to be John. We're all like, I'm John. I'm the one that's, that's, that's at his chest. But recently, as I've, I've fed different people from this perspective, but recently I've started to see myself in the seat of Judas, meaning we all were there. We've all, we've all turned away from him. We all should have been canceled. We all should have been condemned. We've all denied him. We've all betrayed him to some extent. Like sin is what caused Judas to do what Judas did. And so when I put myself in, in Judas's place and see Jesus feeding even Judas, I'm like, oh, even Judas, even Michael Miller, at my worst, he still feeds me. And it's the source that reconciles me so that our connection is based on our source. And it's the broken body of Jesus. And so here's what I'm pleading with you tonight to do, young upper room. We gotta get on top of the spirit of accusation. And we've got to feed ourselves and feed those that are pointing fingers at us. Next, year we'll talk, next week we'll talk about action items and practically dealing reconciliation so we can thoroughly do it. But tonight, I just wanna disarm the power of accusation over relationships and over people. And it's at the table that this thing's broken off. Amen? So get out your bread. And I want you to think of that person. I want you to think about that person specifically. It could be a parent, it could be a brother, it could be a sister, it could be a coworker. And I just want you to see Jesus feeding them his broken body. Jesus in love feeding them. And I want you to forgive them. And we say, Father, forgive them. Father, have mercy on them. Father, feed them your bread as you feed me. Freely you've received, freely give. So now I want you to receive forgiveness for yourself and I want you to receive the bread of life that restores you to the head whose name is Jesus. So just take 60 seconds and do business with God along those lines.